going to read from Isaiah chapter 40. I do want to build your faith in a series that is called Believing Big, and the intention right now is that we're going to believe bigger than we've ever believed. The vision of this series, which is going to end next week, is that by next week, I want your faith level to be higher than it's ever been. That is the vision. With that in mind, listen to these words. Verse 9, Isaiah chapter 40. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, and I'm going to say to the cities of Florida right now, behold your God. Behold your God. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this or not, but my desire is to cause you today, if you're at home, if you're in person, if you're in a bed, if you're sick, if you're strong, if you're weak, if you're male, if you're female, to behold your God. I want you to behold your God. Verse 10, behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will gather them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult when he made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, nations are like a drop in the bucket and accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They're accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compares with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes high on high and see who created these things. We're going to stop there. God, I ask for help. Lord, help me to help us to behold our God. Help us to help this world to behold our God. And God, right now, give me strength by the power of your spirit. Not flesh, not personality, not just ingenuity, not human persuasion. By the power of you, help us to behold you. In the strong name of Jesus, and everybody shouted. 
Amen. Go ahead and have a seat wherever you are in the sight of the Lord. And let's talk about faith. I was a freshman at the University of Florida when I began to follow Jesus, and I joined a small group, and I had no history with, at least on my part, obviously I think God was involved with all of us before we even knew that he was involved, but I had no history with him. I did not know the Bible. I did not know Bible verses. I was very uninformed in many ways, and as such, I didn't know there were certain things you don't say. I felt like you could just say whatever you were thinking when you went into a small group or a Bible study or something like that, and I was in a group that was filled, it had several what you would call faith people. These were people that they would, uh, they, they had a lot of faith, and they, had, they were very, very positive, and they would stop you quickly if you ever said something negative, and uh, I, I learned phrases like, don't speak that death, or don't speak that curse, or don't say something like that, or watch your mouth, or something. And I remember at one point, I, I made some kind of a comment that I thought was clever, and one of the faith people uh, just kind of stopped me in my tracks and said, you know, Mike Pats, you have small faith. And it was just kind of embarrassing as people chuckled as you're in the, in the room as, as, as this new Christian. They said, you need more faith. And I remember just thinking to myself, I, I kind of can't control how much faith I have. I don't know if any of you have ever, like, tried, mm, like, to have faith. It's sort of hard, you know. Like, I have questions. In fact, I wake up in the morning, and it seems to me like I feel like I wake up with new questions every morning. I'm glad the Bible says God has new mercies every morning because I have new questions every morning. I come with new doubts every morning. It's just about what it seems like. It's a good thing that I've met Jesus and that God does not explain himself. He reveals himself. It's, I'm very glad God's revealed himself to me because the answer to your doubts is not information. It's revelation. <laughs> I'm so glad because I have so many doubts. I'm like, oh, that's right. I know you <laughs> and I hear you and you know me. And I remember just hearing this, Mike Pats, you need more faith. And, and it was embarrassing. I was like, oh, well, and this was the question, and this is really my sermon today. My question was, well, how big does my faith need to be? How much faith do you have to have to actually do stuff? Like, how much faith does it take to get a prayer answered? How much faith does it take? Because in my mind, I'm like, okay, let's say you got an ingrown toenail. You want a, a miracle for an ingrown Like, does that take a certain amount of faith? And then bronchitis is a little bit more, and then cancer is a little bit more. How much faith do you need? How much is enough faith? And of course, I started reading the Bible for myself, and I came to the book of Luke chapter 17, and I ended up being severely comforted by this passage where Jesus' disciples came to him, and they said, Lord, increase our faith. To which when I read that, I'm like, yes. Have any of you ever prayed something like that? Lord, increase my faith. I want more. Now, what I love is after they prayed that, after they said this to the Lord, what the Lord said back to them was he says, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to a mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, what I have here in my hand is a vial of mustard seeds. And this became some of the best news in the world to me, the fact that what God said was that all you need is that, now I don't know if you guys can zoom in on this, I'm going to try to take my, my I'm going to see if I can get one of these on my thumb, I'm going to take a seed of a mustard and get this on my thumb or finger, are you guys able to get this, let me try to get it in the dark there, do you see that? That did not come out of my nose. That is, that is a mustard seed. And according to Jesus, 
And this is the great news of this message. It's not the size of your faith. It's the object of your faith that makes the difference. And the object of our faith is God. I'm going to say it again. It is not the size of your faith that moves the mountains. It is not the size of your faith that uproots mulberry bushes. It is not the size of your faith that gets rid of cancer. It is not the size of your faith that puts your family back together. It's not the size of your faith that's gonna help you to finish your race. It's not the size of your faith that's gonna get you in your back in your right mind. It's not the size of your faith. It's the object of your faith. And the object of our faith is God. Which is why when you join yourself to him, when I joined myself to Ruth Rivera and said, I do, I was, I was married to her from that point forward. And it is not the size of your covenant, the size of your faith, it's the object of your covenant. It's the object of your faith. And when your object is God, that changes everything. Now, to be sure, for much of my life, the confusion for me was, was in the fact that I think my faith was in a lot of other places. Okay, even in my Christian life, I didn't understand, and in some ways, English grammar is helpful. So an object of a sentence, for example, is it's the noun or the pronoun that receives the action of a verb. That's what an object is. It's the, it's the, it's the noun, it's that thing, that person, that, that object that, that receives the, the, the verb. So if you are doing the verb of believing, the question is, what is the, where is the belief directed? And if I was honest, a lot of my belief was directed at my belief. I was hoping to believe in belief, or it was believing. And I think for a lot of Christians, we wouldn't say that. In function, though, what we would say is we have put our belief in our optimism or our, in our ability to not be pessimistic, which is really a bummer if you get around optimistic people that are very, very positive about everything, and you're a naturally pessimistic person. Great news for you is that faith does not depend on your personality. It depends on your God. Some of you, God gave you a personality that you're, you're like a very analytical person, and you've got lots of cynicism, and you've got lots of doubts, and you've got lots of... And what I would say to you is it is not the size of your faith and the absence of your doubts. It's the object of your faith. And when your object is God, you've got it. This is very good news. This is very good news. So when faith man would say to me, Mike Pats, you don't have enough faith. My answer is no, but I've got the right God. And you can have the right God if you give him your heart. And what we have here in Isaiah 40 is there's been 40 chapters leading up to this one where the failures and the suffering and the sins of Israel have been like a highlight in their minds. And now the page is being turned, the music tune is changing, and Isaiah has now shifted in chapter 40 when he says, comfort my people. And now he is coming and saying, I want you to behold your God. Now, friends, I, I want to break this sermon down, kind of what I, an old school grandma of a church that I was reading about, that she would go to church and occasionally the pastor would be preaching, and when he was preaching and he started preaching moralism, she would, she would know moralism's not going to work, because I want to get real clear, you do not change by trying harder, you get changed by gazing at God. Which is why moralism never works if someone says, come on, man, stop lying, Stop being greedy. Stop being materialistic. Stop being lustful. Stop looking at porn. Stop being jealous of other people. Just, just stop. Kind of like Nike is classic moralism. Just do it. 
Now, now there's a truth to just do it. What I'm letting you know is you do not change by trying harder. You change by gazing at the greatness of God. That's what changes you. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against training. I'm not against habits. I'm not against atomic habits. I'm not against, you know, uh, Mike, you can give yourself a new habit in 21 days. I get all of that. What I'm letting you know is hell will be full of people that had very good habits. Transformation is the result of gazing at a God who is so supernaturally radioactive that those who look to him are radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. <laughs> so this grandma would go to church and when the pastor started drifting into moralism and you could kind of feel it, wait, where's Jesus gonna, when is Jesus gonna show up here? When, is, when, when are we gonna have some good news? Because that's kind of what we have in this passage when it says, go up on the high mountain, O herald of good news. Like, don't just, we don't just need good advice. I need good news. Good advice can restrain my heart. Good news transforms my heart. And when she would sense the pastor was drifting into lots of good advice without the good news, she would just kind of scream out, hey, preacher, lift him up. He'd start preaching and kind of going off one of these things and guilt trip. She, um, preacher, lift him up. Hey, pastor, lift him up. Because he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Church, my agenda right now is I want to lift him up. My assignment is I want to lift him up. The tragedy is that our lives were meant to be signs that said to this world, don't, don't look at me. I've got to decrease. He's got to increase. Lift him up. Behold your God. It's like I, I want to almost get out of the way. Like, how do I get out of the, let's see if they can keep up with me in the, in the camera. You know, let's see if they can find me or wherever I'm at. No. Oh, there, there it is. Yeah, that was smooth. <laughs> Lift him up. Evangelical Christians are hypocrites. Oh, I'm not going to lift up evangelical Christians. I lift him up. North America, South America, white people, black people, lift him up. See, we've made much of a pandemic. We've made much of COVID. We've made much of politics. We've made much of coaches on hot seats. We've made much of our grades. We've made much of cryptocurrency. We've made much of the stock market. It is time to make much of Jesus. We must lift him up. That's all I'm going to try to do with you today. I mean, honest to God, my, my desire today is that before you that I would be like a sign that I have tried to, as much as I know how to, be, to gaze at him, to come out from that and to come on you and say, look at him, look at him, look at him, look at him. And then when you go out, you would know the purpose of church is not so that for an hour or two or a week you look at him. It's that you come back in this little huddle where I remind you, here's the play we're calling this week. When you go out and when you go to Wendy's and they say, can I help you? While you're talking to them, helping you, you are going to say, behold, your God, lift him up. When you go to Sonny's in the waitress comes over and says, what's up? We're like, what's up? I'm glad you set up because I'm going to lift him. I'm going to lift him up. And when you go to school on Monday morning and you're in high school and you go to school and some man, when you were at the party Saturday night, we showed up. Oh my God, man, our faces were blown. Oh, all the drugs, the, all the stuff. The, man, well, what'd you do this? Man, I, I've had a hangover ever since Sunday. And someone comes to you and you're in like ninth grade and they're like, what'd you do this weekend? You're like, you, what did I do this weekend? I met with the living God who spoke to me, blew my mind away. And I spoke to him. I heard his voice. He talked to me. I talked to him, man. And there's no hangover. 
kind of sounds like your thing was a little worse than mine. Lift him up. See, one of our problems with evangelism is we've turned evangelism into asking Christians to go sell vacuum cleaners to people that, that don't have rugs. Evangelism is not supposed to be you selling product to someone when they're not interested. Evangelism was meant to be where you just go tell people what you saw. And friends, I've seen something in him. Who, who is like the Lord? Who is like unto God? Lift him up. When I was a little kid, we'd pray God is great and God is good and let us thank him for our food. That's my whole sermon today. Point number one, God is great. Now, I hesitate to use the words because the word, all of our words have been so dumbed down. Yeah, great. God is great. Great. Like something happens that you're not happy about. Great. How was the pizza? Great. We even use words like awesome. The other day I asked someone, hey, hey man, how was that, how'd that little meeting go? And the person said, awesome. I, I looked at their face. I'm like, clearly not. <laughs> awesome means, uh, 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 like, have you ever had that happen? You're like, like for good or bad. Like awesome is where you are in awe. When's the last time you were in awe? See, that's what, he, that's, what, that's what Isaiah says here. Behold your God. Go up on the high mountain and, and tell them, behold your God. See, people are starving for the greatness of God and they don't know it. They're starving for the glory of God and don't know it. You are starving for the glory of God. This is why people set, this is why so many of us are settling for Netflix and social media binging because we're looking for something glorious, otherworldly. We go to dude perfect. Whoa, how did they do that? Do you understand the perfect dude is not a dude at all? Right? Like, I'm not against dude perfect. I'm not against you checking out. I'm not against you being on. What I'm, what I'm saying is I'm afraid we have become far too easily pleased. When I go to third world countries, I remember being in a, in a country of extreme poverty and and the children there, they'll get so hungry, their, their stomachs are, are just, just crying out in pain. And, and they will t they'll get mud, and they'll mix it with sugar and maybe a little bit of flour, and they make like mud cakes, and they, and they eat them to, to take the pain away because there's a pain, and, and they're, they're hungry. And when you see it, you, when you see them, you're like, oh, my, no, 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 it's, that's not going to do it, it's... It, it, and it's understandable, and, and, and we get it, and, and there's many of us, and many of you that are listening to me now, you're hungry for something, and, and you can't put your finger on it, so, you, so you're looking in these places to try to satisfy that hunger, and, and we mix together a little bit of something, a little bit of something here, and a little something there, and, and we're like, well, is it a sin? Is it bad? Is it wrong? No, no, the, the issue is you were made for something. There is something in you that can be satisfied by nothing but God himself. There are things inside of you. There, there, there's a way in which your heart was meant to hear the shepherd's voice. Your soul was meant to feel our Father which art in heaven's arms wrapped around you. There is something in you that was made. That there, are, there are nerve endings on your soul that, that can only be found. It's, it's like, you know, they tell you when, when have you ever, like, what, what is it called when someone loses a limb but they still feel the pain? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Like phantom pain? They call it like the phantom pain. What does it tell you when you and I, we have these pain 
pains inside of us that we can't put our fingers on. It's almost as if at the earliest level of our existence we were made. And I would tell you, I believe in the, in the womb that you were created. God himself was already fashioning you. That, that before, there, there's, there's like a phantom pain in our souls that, that our souls know we were made for something that this world cannot provide or explain. And that something is God himself. You've got, there, there's nerves of your being that, that this earth and your body and, and, and Netflix and Amazon Prime and movies and special effects and pleasures and, and romance and, 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 and success never satisfies. And when I look at these kids that are eating, I'm like, well, you're starving. What you need is food. What you need is nutrient. And friends, people are starving for the glory of God. There's just parts of you that nothing's going to say. You'll go see the best sunset, and it's a reflection, but it's not it. You'll see the most beautiful mountain, and it's, it's a sign, but it's not it. There's, you, you, could, you could look at the best wedding, the greatest romantic whatever. You could have the greatest date. You could do, and it's never going to get down to that deepest part of your soul that longs for the glory of God. It longs for the glory of God. God is great. And one of the reasons why modern Christians are having such a hard time in our faith is because we have reduced God to so small. And yet I'm here to announce to you right now, right out of this chapter, it's like Isaiah through Yahweh God through Isaiah is trying to let people know, behold your God. Look at God. Lift your eyes. Lift your eyes. Look, look, look. Look what he says. He's like, behold your God. Verse 12, who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who, who's big like this? Verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? What, what man shows him his counsel? Does anybody counsel God? The answer is no. Verse 14, whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? All the talk we have of justice, do you understand the one that invented justice was God himself? There only is justice because there is a judge. Every time you ever say, that's not fair, it's because there's a judge who says what fair is and what it is not. God is great. You long to, to look. Verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. It's, he's describing now these, these nations that the Israelites have been so impressed with Babylon. And they've been so impressed with Egypt, which is why they're always running back to Egypt when they're in a bad place. They've been so impressed with Persia. They've been so impressed with the nations. We are so impressed with China, who owns the debt over America right now. We're so impressed with the nations. And he's like, look at the nations. Look at these nations, verse 7. All the nations, he says, are as nothing before. They're counted as less than nothing and emptiness. In verse 15, it says, they're counted like the dust on the scales. You know what that means. It means some of you, whenever you've gotten on a scale and you want to see how much you weighed and you knew that thing was lying. So you took off some clothes and, and it still was lying. You're like, man, take off the shoes. And it was still lying. And you're like, I'm going to shave real quick, you know. And it's not affecting it because the stuff you're taking off, it's like dust. And what's dust? Dust, mean, dust doesn't even show up on the scale. All these nations, he says, that you guys are so impressed with, before the Lord, you put, you put Lebanon on there? He said, Le you go, oh, you guys are so impressed with Lebanon. 
He said, it doesn't even measure on my scale. You guys are impressed with nations that are here. You're, you're impressed that it's here for a couple centuries? I mean, just to be clear, the United States of America has been here since 1776. We're talking in the everlasting to everlasting reality of God. That is like this. He's like, wait, you, wait you're impressed with the United States, Mexico, Canada, Israel, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, Ghana, Zambia. You, you, well, these impress you? You are far too easily impressed. That's what he thus says the Lord. You're far too easily impressed. Lift up your eyes. Verse 18. To whom will you liken God? What, what likeness compares to him? An idol, he says. An, an idol who, who he sets it up and, and it doesn't move. You talk to idols and they don't talk back. You ask from idols and they cannot do anything. It is nothing but a placebo that's going to break your heart. When there is a living God, this is, behold the living God. My friends, there has never been a moment in your life that you called out to God that he was not listening. There has never been a moment that you prayed that he was not ready to move. And you might say, why hasn't he moved yet? There are things I cannot explain, but I can tell you this. God is involved in your life. Lift up your eyes and behold your God, the living God. Verse 21, do you not know? Hasn't it told you from the beginning, from before the foundations of the earth? Verse 22, he sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. The, the galaxies were, were made by him. The, the, the sun was established by him. The moons were, 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 were somehow fashioned and formed by the power of his word. That with nothing but a word, he made the supernovas and he made the, the, the stars and the galaxies to make the beauty in the sky and Orion and the Big Dipper and, and all the, the vastness of it, the, the eternal feeling of it, where, where the scientists tell us that they have tried to search the expanse and they know that they've but scratched the surface. At the beginning of the beginning of the beginning, do you understand that when we're even experimenting and looking and getting our best telescopes to look into the depths of the universe, that, that it's like if you were reading a book, you got to the first page of the preface before the introduction, before you even got to chapter one, because there is so, so, so much more to this God. Behold, your God. I heard this week of another Christian influencer that has deconstructed and they no longer believe in Jesus and they are no longer Christian and they, and they now, they, they, they sort of worshiping Mother Earth. They're all into Mother Earth to which Isaiah would say, you do realize that God Almighty created Mother Earth. Oh, friends, be in all. If you go to Clearwater Beach and you love a sunset, oh, be in all. But don't be in all at a sun because the sun was nothing but a sky, was nothing but a canvas that when the creator of the universe wanted to make a painting, he didn't take a piece of paper and some finger paints. When the creator of the universe wanted to give you something to behold, he used the universe as a canvas and a star as his painting. And he said, now look at me. Glory to God in the highest. Oh, friends, behold your God. Behold your God. Behold, he says in verse Verse 23, he brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as, as emptiness. What's he saying? 
A couple chapters earlier, over like in Isaiah 37, Hezekiah was the king, and, and there was these, uh, these other nations, and Sennacherib was, here's a guy that's got power and influence and bringing all sorts of threats and danger, and, and, and they've been so impressed with pharaohs, and they've been so impressed with Abimelechs, and they've been so impressed with kings of other nations, and they've been so impressed with Cyrus, and they've been so impressed with these rulers, and we get so impressed with Alexander's the Great. We get so impressed with Genghis Khan. We get so impressed with Napoleons. We get so impressed with Hitlers. We get so impressed with George Washingtons. We get so impressed with Abraham Lincolns. We get so impressed with Bill Clintons, Barack Obamas, um, you know, Hillary Clintons, George W. Bushes, Donald Trumps. We are so impressed with princes, and God says, they're like nothing compared to me. Here you put their pictures on the wall, and when they walk in the room, you rise up. Do you know who I am, he says. They are the rulers of temporary nations that come and go. I am the king of glory that rules a kingdom that shall never end. I, I was reading a book about a, I mean, Mike, could you tell a story or make this more practical? Here, here it is. I was reading a book about a, a church where the pastor, at the beginning of the year, they had a week of prayer, and he preached on Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he said, I preached that message, and I purposely included no application in the sermon. I wanted to do nothing but just declare the glory of God and to see if nothing but gazing upon the glory of God would do something in someone's heart. Well, there was a family that came, and this family, a couple months, within a couple of months of that prayer time, the beginning of the year, they, they went through unspeakable tragedy as something horrific happened to one of their children. They were walking through the valley of the shadow of death, trying to make sense and heads and tails out of what was going on in their life, and, and they were meeting with the pastor, and, and he came to them, he said, how are you getting through this? They said, you know, pastor, it's interesting because at the beginning of the year, you, you told us to gaze upon the glory of God, and and, and, and we, there was something in us that just knew that there are some needs that can only get met with a vision of the greatness of God. And we've been walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and yet we are here to tell you the only thing that's gotten us through this time has not been someone saying it's all going to be okay. It has not been someone with giving us some psychological nuance. It's not been with some cliche. It has been nothing but a vision of a God who is holy, holy, holy. Yeah. Friends, when we come to verse... 25, he says, to whom then will you compare to me that I should be like him says, and then he uses this phrase, the holy one. Now, I like this because I'm reading a book by Jackie Hill Perry right now that it's called Holier Than Thou. Boy, am I loving this book. I mean, from the jump, it is just like straight spitting fire from the very first syllable. But she says, somewhere lurking in the bottom of our unbelief, she's describing that so much of our unbelief is tied to the fact that we do not recognize God is holy. She says, one of the reasons that we feel like we can't trust people or we can't trust God is because we've trusted people, they've let us down, we've trusted people, they've stabbed us in the back. We think God is like people, but God says, I am not like anyone. She says, lurking at the bottom of our unbelief is the thought that God is not holy. The word if doesn't belong in front of God is holy. If he is holy, then he can and should be trusted. 
Friends, I just want to say it again. God is quantitatively and qualitatively absolutely holy. That means absolutely other than, separate from, distinct in every way. That everyone else may let you down, God will never let you down. Everyone else is going to run out of steam, God is never going to run out of steam. Everyone else is going to run out of ideas, God is never going to run out of an idea. Everyone else is going to run out of provision, He is never going to run out of provision. Everyone else is going to run out of food, all it needs is some star kissed and some crackers, and He can turn that into Moby Dick, and He can feed a multitude. There is nothing He cannot do. Holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is great. To whom will you compare? I, I was, I, I was, someone sent me something on YouTube, and it was a song by Justin Bieber. I think it's called Anyone. I can't remember what it's called. Anyone. I remember listening to it, and, and apparently Justin Bieber is, is a Christian. And, he, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I was just listening to this one song, and, and it sounded like a worship song. It sounded just like a worship song. You know, I was like, oh, if you just changed this word and you just changed that word, this could be a worship song. And I started thinking about it. And this is no, I'm not trying to throw shade on, on you know, Justin Bieber. But I was like, Lord, I want to sing some songs that could only possibly apply to you. You need a transcendent reality experience that my wife, like, like I could say to Ruthie, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. But you know what I could never say to her? I could never say to her, holy, 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 because that's not true. You could say, well, God says, be holy. No, I get that. What I'm saying is there is no one like the Lord. There is a way in which over, many of you I could say nice, cool, sweet, neat, whatever. But I could not say of any of you, holy, holy, holy. Let me just ask the question, friends. When is the last time you were experiencing and encountered God in such a way that what you would have said is, give me a pen, give me some paper, because all I got to say is, who has measured the waters like this? Who has created the mountains like that? Who has created the laws of the universe? Who is it that has given him counsel? Who is it that created justice like this? The nations, they're like nothing. The princes, they're like nothing. The presidents, they're like nothing. The kings, the political dynasties, the, the athletic dynasties, all like nothing. But when I come into his presence, one minute in his, I would rather be one day in the courts of the Lord than a thousand somewhere else. Evangelism is not supposed to be you walk up to someone and say, hey, I would like to talk to you and force you to listen to me so that you don't go to hell when you die and burn the fires of Mordor forevermore. Evangelism was supposed to be people that are presently gazing at Jesus and they are burning inside. And because of the burning inside that they have for a God who is real, they cannot help but tell people what they've seen. Friends, I have seen with my very life, with my very soul. I have, I, yes, I have watched when broken, broken bones came back together. Yes, I've received a call when we've had pastors that called and said, yep, you guys were in Spain and you prayed and we've got two people healed of cancer. Yes, I've had the doctor's reports when people ran in here and told us the miracles that happened. Yes, I could tell you the miracles, but I could tell you the times when I have walked into the presence of God feeling dirty, feeling defiled, feeling hopeless, and then I would come in there and God himself Self spoke a syllable and everything changed. I, I'm, I'm not trying to be a TED talker that's giving you a few principles to get through life. I want us to be love sick worshipers that everywhere we go, we burn. 
That's what disciples are. There's, at least that's what we should be. See, see, number one, God is great. But number, what do we do with this, by the way? Verse 26 gives us the answer. If you did want to know, he says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these things. This is our call. Lift up your eyes and see. I call this a, a Selah moment. In the book of Psalms, David would write a psalm, and he'd, he'd start writing it, and then he'd get a few verses, and he'd say, Selah. And there's a few psalms I'm trying to memorize right now, and it's been annoying because there's some of the psalms, they have like two Selahs. So I'm like, oh my gosh, how am I supposed to remember where to Selah? And Selah just means chill, stop, pause, slow down, listen. Don't, don't miss what I just told you, said the Lord. Selah is where, like, no, 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 no. Don't, you know how you're talking to someone and they're already, they're already making their next point? God's like, no, no, there is no next point right now. It's this. It's, it's something like Jeremiah 10. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. Selah. It's something like Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Selah. It's something like Psalm 90 before the mountains were brought forth wherever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Selah. It's something like Psalm 102. They will perish, but you remain, Lord. They will wear out like a garment, but you are the same. Your years have no end. Selah. It's something like Psalm 95. The Lord is great. The great God. The great King. Come, let us worship and bow down. Selah. It's something like when Mary would say, the, the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Selah. Or my very favorite verse in the whole world right now, 1 Chronicles 29, 11, which says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Selah. Friends, do you understand how great the God is? That I was talking to Andrea before service started, and, and there's a missionary that Ruthie and I love who's a missionary in Zambia, in Africa. And we knew her when she was a girl because her mother died, and she's, she's just suffered over the years, and our church supports her, and we love her. And, and she's been single now. She's been in ministry for going on two decades. And, and anyway, we prayed for her, but I ended up finding out that she's recently gotten engaged, which we were very excited for her. But Andrea was a part of a, an interview process that was going to be with this guy that was going to potentially, whatever. So this guy had been a, and he's a guy from Italy, an Italian guy that was not a believer, did not grow up as a Christian and whatnot. But during the, I believe like the 90s when there was Bosnian drama and violence and things like that, he ended up getting stuck in a place that there's violence and danger. And he ends up getting stuck where he's kind of isolated, it sounds like, with another missionary that was a Christian, like a, a Christian missionary that I, I'm assuming just basically said, great is the Lord. And so the worst thing you could do if you're trying to not find God is to get locked up with someone that actually loves God. <laughs> it's like the humor of the Lord, right? And sure enough, he becomes a Christian. He becomes a believer. He gives his life to Jesus and and they're doing some missions work, and they ended up down in, like, South Africa. They're doing some things. They wanted to go make a trip up to Zambia. There's some pretty places in Zambia. But on their way up there, the guy that was with him, which became, like, his spiritual father, ended up getting malaria, was dying of malaria. So he's in a car. They stop in this very rural, very third-world place in Zambia, which, is, which happens to be where our missionary that we love, Amy, if she's watching this, where Amy was there. And 
uh, and they go there. So he goes and, and, and they, they try to take him to the hospital. But many, I don't know if you guys know this, but many places in the world, it's, I mean, we take things in America for granted. You, in America, you go to, to a hospital, they have to take you if you're dying. There's many places in the world, if you don't have money, they're like, I don't care if you have money or not, we're not taking you. Well, they had no money. They're not going to take him. The guy's dying of malaria. And he, so he goes over to find a bank, and he wants to go to an ATM machine to be able to get cash out of a bank, but, but they don't have anything that's like that, any kind of technology. This is like 30 years ago or something. And, and when he goes in there, the guy that goes up to the teller, hey, can I get some money? They're like, hey, you're going to have to go travel 600 kilometers from here. That's the closest place you're going to find an ATM machine to do what you want. And he's like... Well, that's not going to work. And he's trying to tell him, but can you, I need to, surely you can do something. Nothing I can do. He says, can I speak to the manager? The guy says, I am the manager. He's like, oh, well, he's trying to explain a little bit more. You know, I'm the manager and and all these things. There's nothing you can do or whatever. He's like, but the the hospital, he's like, well, it's not going to do you any good. The hospital beds are all full and and whatnot and and all this. And he's like, well, can I speak to the owner of the the bank? He says, well, actually, uh, I am the owner. And at this point, he's just desperate for the life of his friend, spiritual father, and he begins to weep, and he tells him the whole story of like, you know, just gives him the whole background, the whole story. This man is going to die. At which point, the clerk slash manager slash owner of the bank gets up from his desk and comes around and lets him know, well, I also happen to be the owner of the hospital. And I want you to come with me because let's take your friend. All the expenses are going to be taken care of. And Andrea was telling me the story. And I'm like, Andrea, this is what I'm preaching about. Because she says to me, she says, he didn't realize, his name is Marcos, he didn't realize who he was talking to. And there's some of you that you thought when you prayed, you were praying to a clerk. Maybe the manager maybe the owner of the bank. What you didn't realize is you were talking to the one that's in charge of it all. There is nothing outside his jurisdiction. There is no mountain that's too high for him to climb. There is no problem too grave for him to navigate. There is no situation with which he does not have the wisdom and understanding and discernment. There is no egg he cannot crack. There is no person he cannot melt. There is nothing he cannot do. And he is your God. Behold your God. Selah. Mike, what do you want me to do with this sermon? When you leave this week, when you go into your microchurches, help each other, Selah. When you get into one of those points and someone's struggling with whatever they're struggling with, mm, mm, church, your calling in God is a worship leader. You, my call, like Mike, you're a preacher. No, I feel like my call in life is a worship leader. I want to preach, but I want to help you to worship. My desire is that you would know there is n- who, my, you know Michael means? Michael, my name means who is like God. This is my desire that you would walk out of here and all week long you would say, who is like God? You'd go to the waitress and you'd say, oh, you'd lift, oh, behold the Lord, behold the, and you would come because when you get this passage and you see how great he is, you get the feeling that, that Isaiah is wanting Israel to know. God is great. And yet, in, and this is where I just ended on verse 11, in this one verse, he says, the God who is great, look at verse 11, he's also good. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead them that are with young. The mystery of Isaiah 40 to me is the mystery of the universe. 
It is that the God that is great is also good. It is the God that is mighty is also gentle. It is why in Exodus 33, when Moses said, God, show me your glory, the Bible said, God said, okay, I will cause all of my goodness to pass before you. See, friends, the ultimate greatness of God is actually not seen just in the fact that he can weave together a universe like an artist. It's the fact that he can melt a heart like mine. But he doesn't melt it with his overwhelming dictatorial sovereignty. He overwhelms it with his gentleness and kindness. Which is why Jesus would say when God himself came to earth, when God finally came down because humans did not get him and did not understand him, he was, giving, he was always giving the hints. Because in the Old Testament, there was always hints. God does get provoked to anger. God hates sin. He hates sin. Sin is going to kill. He hates it. God gets provoked to anger, but he is gracious and kind. I need you to catch this. We humans, we have to get provoked to love, and we naturally get angry. God has to get provoked to be angry because he's naturally kind and gentle. This was even in the Old Testament. When God says, my ways are not my, your ways are not my ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts, his next line is not, because I am strong and I stomp out the wicked. What he says next is, I am gracious and merciful, full of steadfast love. Friends, the glory of God was seen most in Jesus, and when God came to earth to reveal all of it, when you opened up God and he says, come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, he says, because, for, and it's the only place in all the Bible where Jesus shows us what's in his heart. If you open up his heart and you looked, what's in there, he says, for, I am gentle and lowly in heart. I'm expecting him to say, I am strong and my, what he says is, I'm gentle and lowly and heart and it is a stunning thought to me that the one who weaved together the universe gathers us like a shepherd gathers his sheep and treats us with gentleness and kindness and mercy which is what Jesus does on the cross when he goes and he knows he knows what sin is he knows the hatred of sin because sin is a stench in his nostrils. He knows that. And he knows there's no way we can get to him. Like our little girl, Anaya, a few weeks ago, one person got COVID, someone else got COVID, someone else got COVID. Poor Anaya, she comes home and she's vomiting down one side of the house and vomiting down the other. And she felt so bad. She was so embarrassed. And I went to her in her room and, and I just looked at her little face and it was so full of shame. Her, her face just looked shameful, you know? I said, Anaya, I'm so full of shame. And I got to get real clear. I hate vomit. But when I looked at her face, full of shame, I said, oh, baby, this is your daddy. I have not come to punish you. I've come to love you, baby. As much as I hate vomit, I adore her infinitely more. Your father hates your sin. I won't lie, your sin's going to kill you. You need to repent of it. Are you sleeping with someone you should, you're, you're not married to? It's going to kill you. It's going to kill the relationship. You're defiling somebody. Are, are you lying in, in, in court? Are you, are you cheating in business? It's, it's destructive. It's, it's going to kill you. It's, it's vomitous. It's, it's going to kill But when Father finds you, he doesn't find you to, to shame you. He hurts with you. Jesus goes on a cross because he knows. And he opens his arms wide and says, come to me. 
The one who is almighty is love himself. He's gentle and lowly in heart. And he will gather his sheep like a shepherd. Friends, it's, it's not the size of your faith. It's the object of your faith. And I'm not sure if you guys are aware of who you've been praying to. I'm not sure if we're aware of who we've been worshiping. The good news is if you just get the right object, he's going to find a way to make this work. But if some of you have been praying some really small prayers because you forgot who he was, can I remind you, great is the Lord. That means because he's great, he is able to do exceeding abundantly above what you can ask, think, or imagine. But because he is good, he actually wants to. And if you're here and you're not right with God, the wages of your sin is death. But the gift of your God is eternal life through the gentle and lowly Jesus Christ who has already paid the way. God in the flesh who adores you and there is no sin he will not cover. There is no mountain he will not move. There is no family he will not redeem. And he's called you the sheep of his pasture if you'll say yes.